it was both exciting and frightening. It was exciting because we had the opportunity to travel, and everybody liked that. But it was frightening because of the sort of relatively unknown nature of the opposition. A caper in the 1969-70 Intercities Fairs Cup presented Kilmarnock Football Club with some of their most resilient European adversaries. Windswept, militaria-laden passport officers flanked by lines of fighter jets, a henchman goalkeeper specialising in refill pull and punch handshakes, and a referee who didn't see nothing, led our adventurers to a chilly denouement, a game of football's desperate, wheezing, grasping attempt to break free of its predictable fate. Episode 22 of Killy Histories is the 2021 Christmas special. Ross Matthey, Jimmy Cook and George Maxwell look back some 50 years to the adventures of a lifetime. I'm Gordon Gill and this is Flight from Bacow. It is often said that it was a different sport back then. The relative approaches to opposition scouting is an indication of that, as explained by popular winger Jimmy Cook. We were used to knowing Partick Thistle inside out, Celtic inside now, Rangers inside out. Here we had no inclination about what was about to happen, but the teams lined up for us would show you why you could be frightened. The teams lined up were Sofia Dinamo Blackow of Romania, FC Zurich of Switzerland. We were more confident with our game plan in the game versus Zurich because we had them scouted in Zurich. But Sofia and Blackow is a long way and we didn't have any insights at all. So pretty, pretty confident about Zurich, which proved to be right. So we had good wins against uh, Sofia and Zurich. Both those games, home and away, were terrific games. Manager Walter McRae was one of the most forward-thinking strategists in the country, his philosophy inspired by time spent in the company of Helenio Herrera. The scope of his scouting network was restricted, though. Reconnaissance on FC Zurich, Slavia Sofia and Dinamo Bacau amounted to referring to a well-thumbed Rolodex for the landline numbers of select journalists, as striker Ross Matthey recalls. What happened is, I know for a fact that Walter McRae had phoned one or two people, like pressmen, uh, that he knew that maybe had a contact in Switzerland, and we got some information that way. The fortunate thing about the FC Zurich is we played them first in Zurich, mm-hmm. so by the time we came back to Kamarna, we lost... I think it was 3-2 out there. But the two goals were obviously a lifesaver for us when we came back to play them at Rugby Park. That gave us the opportunity that we'd already seen them. They'd already seen us, and so we were able to handle that. The next one was the Bulgaria, because we played them at home, and uh, we got a good result there. But apart from we lost the goal later on, that goal, I think it was 4-1, that got to the stage that we could have a problem but we held on and we got through to the next round and then we played the Romanian team at home I can't I think there was an, a club that Walter knew who had played back out in the previous round and he phoned them and he got some information off them uh, that was a harder one when we played them at home and then when we went over there Following a 5-4 aggregate success against Zurich in round one 
goals from Jim McLean, Ross Matthey, Jackie McGrory, Tommy McLean and Eddie Morrison, a more significant footballing and logistical challenge lay in wait in the relatively unknown Bulgarians, Slavia Sofia. We got a good result there, but apart from we lost the goal late on, that goal, I think it was 4-1, that got to the stage that we could have a problem. Because I think when we went to Bulgaria, within 10 minutes, I think we were 2 nothing down. <laughs> and I remember playing up front that day, and there was this massive clock behind the goal that we were defending. And for the rest of the game, I just saw this big hand go, tick, <laughs> tick. <laughs> it didn't seem to be going very fast. No. But we held on and we got through to the next round. There was a preparation in those days, not like the preparation that we have nowadays, chartering flights to go. It wasn't just you got a flight to London and then changed. Kamara had to pay for a flight from Glasgow direct to where we're going. And the one visit we went to Bulgaria, Sofia, when we were flying out there, we had a, a thunderstorm. And uh, I was opposite Jimmy Cook, and Jimmy had his rosary beads out because when the lightning flashed, you could see it coming through the window, the window lit up, and they were being swayed all over the place. And as we were coming down, it was blowing a gale and lashing a rain and thunder and lightning. And as the pilot just approached, so we're only a few feet from the ground when he put the joystick back and went up again because the wind was too strong and we had to go circling for half an hour and then we eventually get down. I can assure you, uh, those rosary beads from Jimmy Cook was passed around the plane quite often. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose it would be, it's fair to say that, well, it's just a matter of fact, that air travel at that stage wasn't as common and so people would maybe, it would be worrying even now for that to happen, that would be worrying. But if you're not yeah. a frequent flyer, that would be particularly troubling. Well, that, that's right, you, you've hit that nail in the head. I mean, in fact, just the mental picture come into my mind there of uh, the air stewardess coming round with the trolley. Now, the trolley nowadays is a real fashion trolley. It's got a hot plate underneath it for keeping things. It's got tea, coffee, it's got all that. This one was a hospital trolley <laughs> and it had a big bottle of wine and a big bottle of water and that was it. And you had these wee paper cups and they were flimsy. And if you held them too tight, they burst. You know, and when you think of how you travel nowadays, is completely different from those days. But it had to be done, mm-hmm. and everybody just accepted we got on with it. You know, Kelly's reward for grimly hanging on in Bulgaria was a tie with Dinamo Bacau of Romania in round three. Despite Ross Matthey opening the scoring in the first leg with his fourth goal in five in the competition, the sturdy visitors dispirited the already bitter near eight thousand souls inside a freezing rugby park. Petri Baluta with an equaliser in the 73rd minute. With away goals at play, one all was a high tariff scoreline. Yet no significant response was offered by Kelly in the final quarter of an hour. A positive result away from home was now essential. There was all, all sorts of preparation. For, for example, when we went to Romania, we took food with us because in those days it wasn't easy to know what was going on in there and so on and so forth. So we had taken food and I remember we were sitting in a room, three or four of us, and we were having a cup of tea and we had taken biscuits and stuff like that with us and these uh, kids came and they were looking for autographs but they were down there and we went down and we signed the, the autographs and then uh, we gave them some biscuits and honestly you thought you'd given them a thousand pounds. They thought this was great, they'd never seen things like this and you could tell that when we were in the town. The travelling party for the third round second leg included some regal names of Kilmarnock's 1960s. McLaughlin, King, Dixon, McGrory and McLean, to name a few. And in the group, 
a wide-eyed young man still to make his first start, George Maxwell, hoping for some involvement in European football. It was unique. It's going back to me saying about being in a big club. I was 19 and I was in, just getting into, I was in second year of college, I think. So um, I was parting, I had to get time off to go. The, the principal teacher that I was a student with didn't know I was a footballer. And then I think somebody, I think it was my mum, had to phone up and say, I'll not be in this week, he's going to Romania to play. So suddenly, my standing within this, the PE department rose a bit. I was only 19, so going with a squad at all was a big deal. They chartered an aeroplane to go. We didn't go on a, a regular flight. We had an Aer Lingus flight to ourselves. The players, the, the board and the press all went on this to Bucharest. So the whole thing was just a huge experience and not to be forgotten. We flew to Bucharest. We stayed a night in Bucharest. Some of the worldly travellers like Ross and uh, Tony McLean, they knew what was coming. Jim was playing, so there were three of them. They knew what were, about this going to the Eastern European and they took biscuits and I'm not saying they took sandwiches, but they took their own supplies because they didn't want to eat the food. And then we had to get a flight from Bucharest to back out, and it was an internal. So that was an experience. Sandy McLaughlin was scared stiff, so he's up the back pretending to sleep, because <laughs> he didn't like flying. He didn't like flying at all. And we flew into this airport, and it was massive, but it was all MiG fighters, because it was up near the Russian border. Right down one side was all military planes, and then we got taken in. There was no airport facilities at all in the hut, and we just got our stuff. The night we arrived, we were taken to a big theatre, and they did a national dance. and nas They put on a show for us, basically. And we had all to stand up, and the crowd all clapped. And they, they, I mean, full house, absolute. Big, huge theatre. They had the dancers on and all stuff like that. Festivities over, the morning of the game brought its own surprises. And next morning, we went to the stadium and the pitch was awful. The pitch was absolutely frozen, solid, because it was January and the pitch was really, really hard. Legend has it, it was flamethrowers, but they had warmed the top inch. So there was about a top inch, almost like muddy slime on it, and underneath was rock hard. So it was near, it was by all intents and purposes unplayable. So we went and we played across the pitch and we played a five-a-side and I think I got the last second half because Walter noticed that I could keep my feet better than most. <laughs> so I was, in the five-a-sides, I was doing no too badly. You know, fight across the pitch. That's my reasoning. So I got a bit of the second half, most of the second half, I think. And this takes me back again, just prior just about the December before the January was when Frank Beatty broke his leg and Hugh Strachan had been brought in and Hugh was struggling on the pitch. That's, I'm not decrying Hugh, he was a good player as well, but uh, he slipped and that's how we lost one of the goals. He, just, he couldn't keep his feet, he was struggling, but the pitch was awful. Legend again, 
that the ball boys had ice skates on. <laughs> no, I think they did. The ball boys were on the pitch and the stadium was right. And it was all guys with big furry uh, jackets and uh, furry, you know, the Russian Cossack hats and cowbells. So it was quite an experience, all in all. What about Bacow the team? Perhaps not an opponent that you'd want to face on their home turf, needing a result. Ross Mathay recollects their approach to dealing with his strike partner, Eddie Morrison. It stemmed from the game at Rugby Park. Their goalkeeper was a wee bit of a lunatic, was maybe, <laughs> maybe too... Maybe not so strong a word for him, but oh, he, his antics in the goals, and especially at corner kicks and free kicks, he actually he, he punched Eddie at, at Rugby Park and had a right go back and forward with him. So when we arrived over there the day of the game, we were in the tunnel, the referee and the linesman were at the front, and the two teams, we walked out together side by side. Now, as we're going out, we're kidding Eddie, there he is, Eddie, you know, the, the goalie, and the goalie, so Eddie, and he put his hand forward to shake Eddie's hand, and of course Eddie took his hand. Well, he pulled him towards him, and he punched him in the jaw. <laughs> well, all behind broke loose, but of course the referee and the officials didn't see it, because they're at the front. And I always feel that in, in these type of games, when you're coming out of a tunnel, one of the officials should be at the back, just in case anything like that. I know it doesn't happen nowadays, but in, in that particular time it did. And of course, that upset Eddie for the, the rest of the game. He's ready to go and have a go at the goalkeeper. Dynamo Bacow uh, were a very different proposition entirely. There was nobody below six feet. They were tanks. And secondly, they were ferocious. The full-black mark on me was kicking lumps out of me all game and swearing at me in Romanian, which, I, of course, I understood carefully. Yes. <laughs> Whenever I took him on. Every time I took him on, he would pull me down. He would scythe me down. I gave as good as I got. It was a round battle, both in Bacow and at Rugby Park. At every point in that game, you're feeling that at some point, somebody in our team could get put off, you know, off the field mm -hmm. for no apparent reason. They could kick lumps out you, and uh, there was no retribution. The whole thing was, I would use the word a disgrace, if there was anybody from uh, the authorities there, uh, the authorities in football, then I'm pretty certain that, I mean, in today's terms, they would be, they, they would be thrown out. Mm -hmm. they, they, would be, they would be thrown out. One of them was a Romanian internationalist. But of course, that's the thing I've been playing in Europe. They don't speak your language, so they're talking to each other. And I'm thinking, so you're talking, da 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 da. And then this Dembrowski or something. Anyway. He spoke to me in perfect English, 19-year-old, you know, gobsmacked. There was no fluid football whatsoever. It was keep your feet as best you can and get the ball forward. I did have a shot at goal and it struck one of our players, but it was heading for the top corner. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, no. I just remember it was almost impossible to play. The game probably wouldn't have gone ahead in this country, but we were there. They had to play it. We had to get it done uh, and get back. It was as simple as that. And back in the day, I think Ross and Tommy and Jim McLean had been in Europe and they knew going to the Far East, Far Eastern Europe was a journey and a half.
the crowd were a wee bit back from me, if I remember, and uh, it was a crowd of football, but we were treated very, very well. We were looked after. It was quite a nice hotel. Um, we were. There was never any problem in that respect, but it was just quite clear that the country was was so poor. When we were going to the stadium, half the houses were just corrugated iron hovels. In fact, one of the things I noticed was, yeah, but they all had a television aerial. See, this corrugated iron thing with an aerial, back in the day, a satellite dish now, but back in the day it was a TV aerial. And going through the countryside, like, it was just peasantry, really. We were kept under close supervision, and especially in Bucharest. I went out with somebody just to get stretch my legs. Moneylenders, folk desperate for your money, want to change their money and give you their money. It's hard to describe how bad it was. And then on the way back, after the game, desperate to get home, and it was foggy and we couldn't fly. So uh, they put us on buses. We drove in the buses through Romania, which was unbelievable in terms of poverty and just horrendous. Horse-drawn carts and corrugated iron houses and all that stuff. So that whole experience was unbelievable. And then we get to the airport and the Romanians say we can't leave. The Aer Lingus staff hadn't come to the gate. They'd stayed in Bucharest and they said, we're going, we want to go, we want home. And the Bucharest folk were saying, no, you can't. So there's a lot of arguing going on. You have to go through. And I always remember the having handed in your passport. And it was like, you're far too young. You'll not remember the mannequin advert with the guy in the military uniform at the passport. And he's not going to let you and he's looking. And it was so out of a James Bond thing. And then the guys come on the plane with the, with the guns to check the plane because they didn't want us to go and they were looking for excuse. The Air Lingus captain in Broad Dublin said, I'll be taking you up. <laughs> so... And I think the, I think the, stay, the plane stayed vertical for ages as we got up and back. The comments in the paper was that Walter seemed glad to be back, but it cost the club a fortune to hire the plane. But an experience of a lifetime, really. Thank you to George Maxwell, Jimmy Cook and Ross Matthey for sharing their memories of one of Kilmarnock's less predictable European adventures. These interviews took place during 2020. Thanks also to Paul Clark for setting up such fantastic guests. Kelly Histories is a not-for-profit project made for the Kilmarnock Football Club Former Players Association. Find out more at www.kellyhistories.com. For the second season, I am very grateful to the Killy Trust for its backing in covering all production costs. Find out more about the Trust and its relationship with Kilmarnock FC at www.thekillytrust.com. The sound effect Blizzard by Kevin Luce at www.freesound.org is used under Creative Commons Attribution Licence. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time.
the whole thing, the whole experience was something that you would never want to forget and something that you would like to do again. 